0: All right, one of, maybe a confession here. One of my most tense moments between me and Jill uh, when we were engaged was when she told me that she wanted to keep her last name. (laughs) Now granted, Lockhart is her maiden name. It's a much cooler name than Davis, right? Davis is just generic, right? I get it, I get it. Lockhart's a cool name. Uh, but it caught me off guard. And I'm, I'm not against people who don't want to change their name, keep their name, not against people who hyphenate, any of that. We just hadn't talked about it, okay? And it was pretty late in the game. Like, my memory was that we were on the way to Longview for the wedding. <laughs> that's not how it was. Okay, that's what, yeah, that was not how it was. Uh, but it was pretty late in the game. And once, uh, you know, the steam kind of finished coming out of my ears, I was able to kind of fully comprehend that she was totally just messing with me because she knew which buttons to press, right? But there is something beautiful about the idea of a name change, that it completely identifies you with another person when we're talking about marriage. And now Jill is forever distinguished as married to me. Because she did take on my name. Thank the Lord. (laughs) Um, By the way, that's been uh, far more beneficial to me than it has been her. Uh, Last week, actually, I was introduced to someone as Mr. Jill Davis. Uh, That's not the first time that's happened. And uh, I didn't even tell her about that. But yeah, that happened. Uh, And I'm okay with that. But Genesis chapter 17 is where we are studying today. And what happens in Genesis 17 is God changes the names of Abram and Sarai. So, we're talking about a name change. He does this as a way to confirm his covenant relationship with them, ultimately, in the attempt to lead them to completely identify with him. This is part of him drawing them in to faith, to complete identification with him. That despite the roller coaster of faith that we've seen from them since Genesis chapter 12, when God made the first initial promise. To Abram, that they might agree now to trust God fully and completely that He is faithful to fulfill His promise to bless them and then to bless the world through them and through their offspring. Now, one thing I know about marriage is not a lot, but one thing I know is that when you take the vows and say, I do, that's not the finish line. Like when the name changes, that's not the end, right? That's really just the starting line for growing together. And so Genesis 17 and into chapter 18 show us today what a growing relationship with God by faith looks like. We're going to read the first half of Genesis 17. And then after that, we're going to cover a chapter from the middle of 17 to the middle of 18. But I'm just going to summarize that for us when we get to that point. But if you've got a copy of God's word, open it to Genesis 17. If you don't have a paper copy, use your phone or whatever you got there, or you can follow along on the screen. But let's read together chapter 17, verse one through 16. You guys follow along. I'll read it out loud. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here's my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful, and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant between to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your house uh, household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Wow, what a promise. What a promise. Now there's lots of stuff in there. We see the name changes. Abram, whose name means father. uh, But up until this point, he has no children. So that's been a tension in the story. God now changes his name and actually for a moment increases the tension because his name now becomes father of a multitude. Because he'll be father of nations. And so God's sort of upping the ante by giving Abram this new name. He gives Sarah a new name, Sarah, which is not really a big change. Neither one of them are big changes. It's just sort of a clarification or a definition of who God is calling them to be, and what he plans to do with them. Uh, Sarah's name changes into sort of like queens, kings and queens will come from her, right? So this is just sort of a clarification of God's promise and call. It's a confirmation of his call. In fact, we see how much of this covenant actually comes from God. And so the first thing we got to consider is when we're talking about our faith and what faith in God looks like and what does it mean to have a faith that's growing. The first thing we see in the text here is that faith grows in dependence. That's how faith grows is when we learn dependence on God. Now, Abram, if you remember in chapter 16, failed big time. I mean, this was like the worst of the worst kind of chapter 16 when he takes Hagar as a second wife given to him by Sarai. I mean, this is a miserable failure of faith in chapter 16. And the very next interaction we see with God is, yeah, 13 years later uh, into chapter 17 from chapter 16. However, it's the first recorded interaction we have between Abram and Sarah. You know what we would expect from God? Maybe you expect the same thing you would expect from a parent that when you do something wrong the parent comes in and says look you know you did that wrong and maybe there's some yelling involved maybe there's some punishment involved maybe there's anything number of things that ways that you might respond as a parent have had as a parent respond to you when you fail but what god does is not lecture about abram's faithlessness or his failure but rather becomes with a reminder to abram about his own power and about his promise. You see, God chose to partner with Abram. That's what covenant means. It's a partnership. God chose to partner with Abram, not because of his ability to keep it. Sometimes we put people in the Bible, like Abraham, up on a pedestal. And we think, he must have been really special for God to choose him. The reality is, God didn't choose Abram to covenant with because of his ability to keep it. He actually chose him Specifically, because of his inability to keep it. No one could have kept it. Choosing any human was a grace from God. The covenant is God's initiative to keep and to fulfill the rescue of humanity and to pursue the blessing for humanity for all of eternity. Without God, initiating covenant with humanity first here through Abram there would be no hope for rescue from sin or to live a life of blessing ever so God initiates here listen again to what some of Abram some of what Abram would have heard from God first in very very beginning verse one and two it says the Lord appeared kind of the word in, in, in kind of theology circles that this is a, theoc- a theophany, a theophany. You've heard the word epiphany? Like when you have a light bulb go off and you go, oh my gosh, I just remembered or I just realized or it just clicked for me. That's an epiphany. Well, this is a theophany where Abram is just minding his own business and God shows up. There is a manifestation of God. We saw this before uh, in chapter 15. Now we see it again here in chapter 17. The Lord appeared. Abram didn't conjure him up. Abram didn't pray, God, would you please appear to me? God just showed up of his own volition, of his own initiative. And what he says is, the Lord appeared and he says, I am God Almighty, so God makes a self-revelation of himself with a new name, one that no one in Genesis had ever heard before. You may have heard in, if you've been in church circles, uh, people will say this name in Hebrew. It's the name El Shaddai. Uh, if you listen to, <coughs> excuse me, if you listen to uh, uh, Christian music in the 90s, you probably heard a song by the name of El Shaddai. Okay, <clears throat> Sandy Patty, is that right? <coughs> I couldn't have named it, but okay. Oh, Amy, Grant. <coughs> Amy Grant, okay, one of it had to be one of those two, right? El Shaddai. Now that also could be translated into English as God of Mountains. That's the image here, right? That God is powerful. That God is big. That God is over all. That He's sovereign creator. And that's the, the name Elohim kind of implies that in the beginning. But then Shaddai, this idea that it's, it's, he's high up, that he's over, that kind of helps us see that God is sovereignly over everything. This is what Abram is hearing from God. I am God Almighty. And that's a name that surely he would have needed to remember. If you can think forward, if you read Genesis before, in just a couple chapters, he's going to be hiking up a mountain with his Miracle son, Isaac, preparing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. Don't you think God Almighty, God El Shaddai, God of mountain, would have been something that Abram was repeating to himself as he hikes up that mountain? So this is a self-revelation from God. He says, I will set up the covenant. I will multiply you. Into verse four through eight, we see, here is my covenant with you. I will make you the father. I will make you extremely fruitful. By the way, that's what God wanted in the beginning for Adam and Eve, right? To be fruitful and multiply. It was the same thing in Genesis chapter nine, after the flood that he promised to Noah that you will be fruitful and multiply. Now he's reiterating, this is God's plan to pursue the blessing of humanity. I will make you fruitful. I will confirm my covenant. Excuse me, <clears throat> please. I will give the land. I will be their God. This is God's covenant to make and fulfill. And after Abram's attempts to help God along in the previous chapters and his failures of faith, he needed the reminder that he is completely and utterly dependent on God. And God is completely trustworthy to fulfill his promise the word covenant we talked about means partnership thank you we're coming off some sickness in the house so you probably are too so thanks (laughs) for your grace Uh, the word covenant is used in the first half of this chapter nine times That's a lot. That's a lot of repetition. You probably heard it over and over again, which served as a reminder to Abram of what happened in chapter 15. So if you can think back to chapter 15 or flip back to chapter 15, what you'll find there is when God set up initially this covenant of blood with Abram, and he says to Abram, go get the animals and line them up and cut them and split them in half and the blood runs down the middle. And Abram kind of did that and then he waited and he even fended off the birds. But what should have happened was Abram should have walked through in a way to say, yes, God, I will make this covenant with you. I will live a life completely and utterly dependent and, and completely and utterly obedient to you. But Abram didn't. And we wondered, was that because Abram was... Nervous that he could not keep the covenant because he knew he was sinful. He knew his faith wasn't perfect. He knew he couldn't be perfectly obedient. And so he waited and then God showed up and he showed up in the form of the the smoking pot and the flaming torch and he moved and he went both through the animals at the same time, which is what indicated to us that God was taking on the, the punishment of Abram's potential failure onto himself Because a covenant like that is to say, if you don't keep the covenant, if you don't perfectly keep this covenant relationship, then may it happen to you as it happened to these animals. Death is the result. And so God moves through in two forms, which makes us think that he's taking the the place of Abram in the covenant and also fulfilling his own place in the covenant, meaning that if Abram fails, God will die on Abram's behalf which we said, man, that ought to make us remember what Jesus does in the New Testament because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter three, but God in his kindness and grace gives us Jesus Christ, his own son, his very self as a sacrificial substitutionary offering. He took our place because we couldn't keep the covenant. Jesus died in our stead. Oh, this is a beautiful picture. And God is reminding Abram by the repetition of the word covenant of what happened years before with those animals split open, watching the pot and the flame go through this covenant ceremony. Abram is remembering all of this depends on God. And his faith is growing because he's learning to become more dependent on him. So Abram recognized he brings nothing to the table. We bring nothing to the table. Jesus in his great sermon on the mountain, Matthew chapter five says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's basically to say, remember that when it comes to a relationship with God, you have nothing to offer. You are completely dependent on him. God takes the initiative. God fulfills. God redeems. God restores. Ultimately then God recreates. This is how God works. And so to grow in faith, we must grow in dependence on God. Now, the covenant's not one-sided. Even though God took both places, the covenant's not one-sided. God doesn't force Abram into the covenant like he doesn't force us into the covenant. But dependence on God always expresses itself in a form of devotion. And that's the second way we see faith growing in this chapter is that faith grows by devotion. Devotion. When Christians talk about devotion, um, I think the image that comes to mind most often is like a a steaming cup of coffee uh, with a Bible open and like a beautiful sunrise and the mountains in the distance. And like we have all this, this grand notion of what a devotion looks like. Or maybe it's a devotional that you picked up off the shelf and you're reading and you're looking for like, what's that one thing God wants to say to me today? And then if you've been in the shoes that we've been in, you know what happens is a toddler comes in and screams bloody murder about something that happened. Or, you know, maybe a text message comes through about work and it just gets you totally distracted. Or maybe you went to look up something you read in the Bible and then you end up, you're like 15 minutes later, you're like, why am I on Facebook and I haven't been reading the Bible? It just doesn't always work out the way we imagine it to be working out. So what does true devotion look like? If that's not it, that's what most people think about. What does true devotion look like? Well, this text actually reveals three ways, three things that true devotion looks like. The first is this, is that we learn to walk eagerly with God. To walk eagerly with God. Verse one says, to live in my presence. Maybe your translation actually uses the word to walk before me and to be blameless walk before me this is the call of devotion in light of his dependence on god god calls abram to a life of devotion walk before me and be blameless you may recall noah this was what was said about him in chapter 6 of genesis before the flood comes god says i have this one guy this guy noah he walks with me and guess what he's been found blameless And so he rescues Noah and his family as a way to bless humanity from there on. This is the same thing. He's he's repeating it to Abram. He's calling Abram to a life of walking with him and being blameless. He's calling him to the same standard that Noah had already expressed. What does it mean to walk with God? It's a phrase we use in church circles and Christianity a lot. Walk with God. How's your walk with God? Are you walking with God? Things like that. What it means is it implies that you are walking in submission to a greater authority. That's what it means. We think about the relational aspect of walking, and that's a beautiful picture, but the, the the word picture that the Hebrew picks up here is this word of not walking side by side, but walking before. That there is a judgment aspect to this, that there's an authoritarian, authority aspect to this. And remember, the the sin of Genesis chapter 3 was that they attempted to they attempted autonomy from God to be their own God. And so the opposite of that, the path to blessing, is when God says, walk before me, submit to my authority walk blamelessly be completely wholly committed to a life of obedience so in every aspect of my life if i'm going am i walking with god the question is in every aspect of my life am i living as if god is the one in charge that's the question And that's a revealing question. And anything that is revealed in that must be repented from and then moved back into accordance with God and his word. That's how we walk with God. That's what devotion looks like, true devotion. It looks like complete, whole submission and obedience to God alone. And that's how faith grows. Second thing is this. Faith grows by devotion as we wait expectantly for God. We wait expectantly for God. This is what is picked up in God's reiteration of his promise, his confirmation of his promise in verses 4 through 8. There's so much language here about what God will do, about what's going to happen in the future. And at this point in the text, Abram really doesn't know yet when God will do it. That's been the tension all along. God, I know you've made this promise, but when is it going to happen? He must wait expectantly. He must learn to look for God on the horizon. Now, chapter 12, when God first made the promise, was in Abram's rear view mirror. That's behind him. In fact, now it's almost 25 years behind him. And this is where Abram is, is going, well, God revealed himself to me a long time ago. And then God revealed himself to me again, and still even that was more than 13 years before this moment. So, as God's promise is in the rear view mirror, Abram can move on to whatever in life he wants to, unless he also keeps God's promise in front of him on the horizon. And so waiting expectantly on God means not only to remember what God has promised, but to look forward to God's fulfillment. That's what Abram was called to do here. To wait expectantly, to not get bogged down in his current circumstance, but to choose to live in God's promises regardless of his circumstances. That's the definition of faith that we've been operating with since we met Abram in Genesis, is to choose to live under God's promises regardless of my circumstance. That's what faith is. And so it grows as we keep our eyes on God's future fulfillment. Now, what has God promised us? Because this is the moment where a lot of preachers would just take a lot of liberty here and go, What's God promised you? You know, has God promised you wealth? Has God promised you, you know, a, a great big family? Has God promised you a, this and that, a new job, a better this, or a, who knows? So, what has God promised us? Well, we can't look at anything other than the scripture to inform the answer for that question. And it's clear because we have said before that Genesis is as much about our end as it is our beginning. You know, the word Genesis means beginnings, but it's not just a story of our beginning. It's also the story of our end. So we know that what we are waiting for, what God has promised us is not for a promised son to be born or a promised sliver of land to become ours. What we are waiting for is the promised son who has been born to return. What we are waiting for is not just the sliver of land, but for the whole earth to be redeemed and to be restored. This is the story of scripture from Genesis at creation to the fall of humanity to the redemption that God brings about through Jesus Christ, his son, ultimately to the very end of our Bibles, we see the restoration that he promises, the recreation, the resurrection. This is where we are headed. That's what we wait for is the return of Jesus to make all things that are wrong, right, to judge all evil, to conquer sin and death, to restore everything to the way God intended it to be. And then here's the cool part, to be with us and be our God. And we get to be with him, unhindered, nothing between us, present. Listen to what Revelation chapter 21, verse three says. It says, look, God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Does that remind you of Genesis chapter 17? What was the promise to Abram for his descendants? I will be their God. This is where God is working. And we must not get bogged down in our circumstances. Rather, a growing faith is a faith that is devoted to the reality of God's work of redemption and ultimately, God's work of recreation that happens now until the t- return of Jesus Christ and then is completed when he comes back. That is what we wait for expectantly. And this is an active waiting, this is not a passive waiting. Abram tried a passive waiting. Now God calls him into a life of devotion that waits actively. Uh, The the New Testament book of Titus actually gives us a really cool picture of both of these things, a life of devotion, walking with God eagerly and waiting on God expectantly. It kind of marries the two in just a couple of verses. Listen to what he says. Titus chapter two, verse 11 through 13 says, for the grace of God has appeared. Meaning Jesus has come, right? We're on this side of history now bringing salvation for all people. And this is the walk with God part, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible and righteous and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you see a faith that's growing is a faith that's devoted to walking with God but keeping our eyes on the horizon, eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. That's where we apply Genesis 17. So what is the third way? We are walking with God. We're waiting on God. The third thing is to willingly express loyalty to God. Willingly express loyalty to God. This is the part of the chapter we read and. All the adults in the room started squirming because of the word circumcision, and we're going, okay, what are we going to talk about here? How are we going to talk about this? But it doesn't start there. It starts with the name changes. Do you know that Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah? Y'all just forgive me because I've been calling them Abram and Sarai for like six weeks, and now I'm having to switch to Abraham and Sarai. The same trouble I'm having with it. Don't you know they had trouble? Don't you know, as they referred to each other in conversation, having been instructed by God to adopt these new names, that they sometimes were like, hey, Sarah, I uh, I mean, sorry, Sarah. And they had to build that in, embrace the name change as a new identity so that they were no longer living for who they used to be, but they're now living for who God was calling them to be. That there was a process there that they had to become willing that it would have been much easier just to stay where they were. It would have been much easier to hear from God about this new name and this, this doubling down of the promise and this confirmation of his covenant, but to go, but yeah, but God hasn't really done it yet. So what if we wait until God does something and then we'll start acting like that? But that's not what they did. They started referring to each other right away as Abraham and Sarah. And that's how the writer of Genesis refers to them. So even if they had struggled with it, Genesis shows us that when God makes a name change, you gotta start living for the new reality. Even if it's not totally complete, start living for the new reality. Jesus talks about how, when the Bible talks about how when Jesus rescues us from sin, it gives us a new identity. We now are identified with him. We are in Christ. That our salvation is in him. We're totally unified with him in relationship. That our sin is no longer between us. God totally wipes it away. He totally forgives us. He gives us a new identity. We become a new creation even. The old is gone uh, and the new has come, according to Corinthians. So what do we do with that? Well, a lot of times we live as if salvation is something that happened in the past. The Bible talks about salvation in three ways. It talks about how we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We were saved, meaning that we were justified in our sin. That God, we were guilty and because of Jesus, God said, actually, because of Jesus, you are not guilty anymore. I'm applying Jesus' righteousness to you. You're justified. We are also being saved. The Bible calls this being Sanctified. This is the process of God's Holy Spirit working in us as we partner with him to be less sinful and more like Christ. This is part of our salvation. But also the Bible talks about a third part of our salvation that is in the future where we will be saved. This is what's called glorification. That when we leave this earth to be with God, and 1 Corinthians 15 talks a lot about this, that we will be given a new body, that we will be restored, that when God comes to to make everything right, that we're not gonna be having the same ailments or anything like that before, that we'll be fully glorified, that we'll be made uh, to reflect him wholly and perfectly as we were created to in the beginning. That's our glorification. And so, yes, we were saved. But we are also being saved and will be saved. And this is what Abram and Sarah, Sarai, Abraham and Sarah had to embrace in taking on the name change that I am a new person because of the promise of God and my covenant relationship with Him. And they willingly expressed that through their name change. But also circumcision, which is just an outward sign of an inward reality. That's all it is. That I am committed to God in covenant with him, that he has made this covenant, he will keep this covenant, but he's invited me to be a partner with him in this covenant. And so yes, this is an inner reality that I'm committed to by faith, but I will give this outward sign as a display of not only whose I am, but a reminder of the promise he has made me, which is a promise of reproduction, right? Uh, That there will be an offspring, that there will be a seed coming, not just from Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, but all the way back to chapter three, to their great, 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 great grandmother Eve, who God promised after the serpent led her into sin that he would curse the serpent and that there would be an offspring of Eve that one day would crush the serpent. Yes, the serpent would strike his heel. Yes, he would be hurt and damaged in the process, but ultimately he would crush the serpent. We're talking about Jesus. This is where all of it points. And so circumcision is just an outward sign of an inward reality. It's a reminder of the promise that yes, God will fulfill his pursuit of humanity to restore them into relationship with him by blessing through an offspring of yes eve and then noah and now abraham all the way down the line matthew chapter one tells us this is jesus christ so this is where god is heading with this but it also indicates a belonging did you notice that there was a communal aspect to this that you'll know who's in or out by this outward sign of an inward reality we too have this sort of symbolic, you know, signal, sign, symbol. It's called baptism. We talk about this every time we get to be in the baptistry and help people be baptized, that what we're doing is not saving someone, but what that person is doing is expressing willingly an outward sign of what's already happened in their heart. God has saved them. And so they are identifying with Christ in baptism, but they are also identifying with the fellowship of believers through baptism. This is the same thing circumcision does. It's a, willingly, a willingness to express a loyalty to God. When you do that, your faith will grow. So if your faith is stalled out, what's your next step? If you don't feel like you're growing or maturing in your faith, what's your next step? Is it To begin again walking with God, eagerly submitting to his precepts, submitting to his will, being obedient fully to him, not just a part of your life, but wholly, all of it, blamelessly committed to him. Is your next step to keep your eyes on the horizon, to remember that Jesus is returning and so all of your life must reflect that reality because that's the greater reality. Or is it to actually take a step of willingly expressing your loyalty to him? Maybe you're an adult in the room who got saved a long time ago and because of whatever church situation you were in, you never got baptized. Something happened, something you just missed, you never got baptized. That's stalling out your faith. You need to take that step to say, okay, I'm going to express that loyalty to God publicly and a way to give an outward sign of an inward reality and take that step. If that's you, like the baptism card that's right in front of you, I would say before you leave today, let us help you take that step so that you can see your faith begin to grow again. And that's a beautiful thing. And so that you can find encouragement from the fellowship of believers who are committed together to walking in relationship with God. It's a beautiful beautiful thing. I wonder how many people in the room had an experience with God a long time ago and faith has stalled out. Remember when I said that this chapter 17 was 13 years after chapter 16? Maybe 25 years after chapter 12? And Abram really hadn't seen much happen. He'd seen some really amazing things. But in terms of the specific promise God made to him, he hadn't really seen it come through. I wonder how many of us have gone through life knowing that I had an experience with God. I put my faith in Christ a long time ago, but it hasn't really made a big impact on my life. Maybe you got sucked into sort of the trappings of life. You got distracted with job and money and all these things. You got focused on that and just sort of let the covenant relationship with God fall to the wayside. Maybe... You got hurt. Maybe the traumas of life just ripped you out of that. And you thought, where is God? How could God be good if I went through this? And you go, I'm not going to deal with that anymore. And so your faith was something that happened to you a long time ago, but it still is not happening to you right now. You're not growing in your faith. I just say, wherever you are, there is grace for you. God will not respond to you with a lecture. All God wants to do is remind you of His goodness, to remind you of His promise, to remind you of the salvation that He wants to work out in you so that you can become more like Him. So, there's grace for you to grow in dependence and to grow in devotion. But sometimes it's not that simple. Sometimes you've heard what God has done for you. You know that Jesus died for you, etc. Sometimes you know the life he's called you to live, but you still got questions. You still got doubts. So I want to land by covering a whole chapter worth of content in about five minutes. Okay? Chapters eight seventeen verse seventeen through chapters eighteen, verse 15, how we see our faith grow is it grows through doubt. If you've been a Christian, you've experienced doubt. I guarantee it. That does not negate your faith. Let me show you why. Chapter 17, verse 17, we see uh, Abram falling face down again. Remember in verse 3, he fell face down and worshiped. Now he falls face down in laughter because he's nearing 100 years old. And God says, you're going to have, a child next year, about this time, Sarah's going to have a baby. He falls down in laughter. He says, God, what? Could Ishmael just be okay? Would that be enough? Couldn't Ishmael be all right? And God says, no, my plan is better. I've already told you about Ishmael. I'm going to bless him. Don't worry. But also, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. This is a great promise, but it's a very stretching promise. So then what happens? Well, Abraham now takes it on the sign of the covenant through circumcision. Ishmael circumcised. Everybody in the household circumcised. Abraham is making sure that this happens. Then you get into chapter 18. And the Lord appears again. Chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appears. This is a repetition of chapter 17, verse 1. And so the Lord appears again. And he appears to Abram. This is another theophany, right? And then Abraham looks up and he sees three men. Now there's all kinds of, uh, you know, questions about, well, who are these men? There's a... Pretty common understanding that this is a divine experience, a theophany, right? There's a a revelation, a manifestation of God. Is it three angels? Is it two angels and God, the Lord? Is it uh, a three, uh, um, like a three-part, you know, revelation of God that we might go like, well, is that the Trinity? Is it, you know, we don't know. (laughs) But what we do know is that there's divinely expressed uh, speech, here in chapter 18, and we know it's from God. <clears throat> so he sees these men and he says, uh, can I host you? Uh, can I make you some food? Can I, can I make you comfortable? And they say, yeah, sure. Uh, which I think means God likes food, okay? This is a good thing for us. Uh, so um, there's also food in the new creation. That's something we can look forward to. Uh, so these three men are fed. They're, they're having a conversation. And then the, the focus shifts to Sarah. And right down in the middle of that section, uh, they start to ask the question, where is Sarah? You notice they use Sarah's new name. How did they know who she was? How did they know she was married to Abraham? How did they know she wasn't Sarai anymore? So there's this divine kind of reality that's happening here. So they they say, where is she? And he says, Oh, she's in the tent, you know, she had been cooking, all that. Well, little do they know that she's eavesdropping on them, trying to hear what's going on. And they reiterate the promise again. Hey, a year from now that Sarah is going to have a son. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. The same thing Abraham did in chapter 17, verse 17 and 18. She laughs. So there's an interesting parallel here, maybe even a contrast of two sort of vignettes of experiencing God's promise. Abraham, 99 years old, you're going to have a son, he laughs. Sarah, 90 years old, here's you're going to have a son, she laughs. What's happening here? Now these two accounts are held together by this theophany in the middle. And so they're set up to contrast one another. And so it doesn't really matter who the man is. What we know is that God has shown up again, that the focus is now shifted to Sarah. There's a reiteration of the promise. And when Sarah laughs, God says, why did Sarah laugh, Abraham? And he goes on to say, verse 14, is anything impossible for God? But what you notice here, and this is where the contrast comes into play, Sarah's laughter was internal, right? God knew even what was happening inside of Sarah, and he called it out. When Abraham laughed, God corrected him, and then he moved into obedience. When Sarah laughed, God called it out, and she lied about it. What happens when you doubt? How can your faith grow through doubt? Because you will have doubt. If you look at Abraham, the answer is this your faith can grow through doubt if you acknowledge what you don't know, but you keep doing what you do know. This is practical application. You have doubts, God's okay with that. God's big enough for that. He's God Almighty. He's El Shaddai. He's over it all. He's not worried about your doubt. How are you going to respond to it? Acknowledge what you don't know and then keep doing what you do know. That's what we saw in Abraham's life. He goes, Well, I don't know how that son's gonna work out, but I know you told me about circumcision, so me and all my kids, all my everybody in the household, we're going for it. Like this, we're gonna make sure it happens. Sarah was different. Sarah's doubt was more like skepticism. I love what Pastor Andrew over on our Lombie campus said. He said, skepticism is doubt with teeth. Ugh. This is what she said. She laughed. Herself, God said, Why'd you laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. <laughs> she tried to avoid it. So, God wanted Sarah to remember this skepticism, by the way. Did you see how the chapter ended? If you're looking at it, look again. It says, She says, I didn't laugh. And he goes, No, 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 you did. It's <laughs> a great way to end this section of this chapter. No, no, you laughed. Yeah, I, I saw it. I saw it. Yeah. Because he didn't want her to forget her skepticism when he showed up to do the impossible. He wanted her to remember, and this is how faith can grow through doubt, is when you see God do something that you thought was impossible, you'll recognize that it was undeniably God. Undeniably God. So don't run away from your doubt. What will you do with your doubt is the question that determines whether or not your faith will grow through it. Think about Matthew chapter 28. We know this as the great commission. Jesus has resurrected. He's got his disciples gathered together. They follow him up to a hillside. And he says to them, uh, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them all the things I've commanded. It's the great commission. But you know what happens right before that? Right before he says all authority on heaven and earth has been been given to me, it says that, That they came to him and worshiped, yet some doubted. Period. And he said to them, That means Jesus gave the Great Commission to the disciples who worshiped him at the resurrection, but also the ones who really weren't quite sure how it all worked. They still had questions, they doubted. But what did they do with it? Jesus gave the instruction, go make disciples. That's the instruction he's given us. So we know what to do. We know what we do know, even if we don't know what we don't know. And that's how we work through doubt. God was asking Abram and Sarah to believe him for the impossible, to miraculously provide an offspring through whom the whole world would be blessed and the serpent from Genesis 3 would be crushed And on this side of history, we see God has done it. God did the impossible. He sent his own son to become the payment for our sin, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life, blessing, dwelling with God. It is humanly impossible for Sarah to take a dead womb and make it alive it's humanly impossible for you to take a dead soul and make it live again. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the Son from God through whom people could be redeemed from sin, through whom evil would be crushed, through whom creation will be restored. And so faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only path to eternal life and true blessing, to a life of fulfillment and flourishing. It only comes through Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you were dead in your sin, And trespasses. But God made you alive again through Christ. And so the question of Genesis 17 is, do you have life through faith in Christ? If you do, how will you grow it? Dependence on God, devotion, even through your doubt, doing what you do know. Let me lead us in prayer. Haley and the team are going to come and lead worship. One quick song of response. You have a moment just to let this sink in before we go back into the world. Let me pray for you, and then we'll respond together. God, you are good to give us this vision for faith, but you are better to give us a provision for faith through Jesus Christ, whom you gave for our payment for sin, the substitute for me, for everyone who would respond to you by faith. May that take root in us today. And regardless of where we encountered you in our lives, today would we be people, God, who depend completely on you and live a life of devotion to you And even when doubts come that we know who we are in you and we know what you've called us to do. God, make us people of courage who follow you in faith even through our doubts and that we see our faith mature and grow. God, if someone today needs to respond to you in faith, would you stir their heart right now? Just give them the courage to say, I need to put faith in Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.